This is That's Another Story Told, the podcast. The author, the narrator, the short story. Together they dance in your ears. Hello and welcome to episode six, part two, where we continue to read Adder by Vicky Riddle. He is so angry. Nothing seems right. The world is falling apart. Everything he believes in is slipping into a past world, one that he felt could never pass. He silently rails against the new order, where people robotically go about their days unseeing, unfeeling, finding fault in all that does not fit into a neat box. He can't understand, and yet he knows he is complicit. His presence is small, he walks in the margins, not because he has to, because he never had to do anything else. His existence has been based only on what he has wanted, what when, why, who, where, all answers back to him. He never looked outside of himself because there was no need. Others came to him, others filled his space, others gave him worth. Minimal effort from himself and always with a defined ending. One that allowed him to slip out of sight, unnoticed, unjudged, or he left behind the judgment for others unfounded. But now? Now he finds it's not enough. He is empty and notices it. He is vacuous and notices it. He is devoid, a void, avoiding. He knows he needs to turn towards it, but he is deeply terrified of the consequences. What he imagines is an ever-reducing circle closing tighter and tighter around him, constricting, suffocating, always holding him accountable. Because he can't escape? No. More sinister, because he will be counted. Yellow eyes seem to bore into him, burning, and he releases a half-strangled cry that echoes back to him. Why? 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 Jenna thinks slowly through a stupor that is hard to swim out from. A thick, soapy, noxious substance that sticks to her body envelops her very being. She is out on the street, but she feels separate from the everyday that is happening here. She thinks she is breaking. Bit by bit, parts are falling away, peeling off, shedding. She tries to gather the strands that have unravelled around her, but they are knotted or split. Jenna wants so desperately to return to the order that allows her to function capably. This won't happen. The scales have tipped. The gods have cast the lots. The skeleton woman is calling from the depths. The selkie's sealskin is dried and rotting. Jenna drags her eyes upwards, away from the ground. In the distance, above the buildings, buzzing wires, sad flats, she sees a tree. It is magnificent, and rises proud and knowing out of the artifice laid bare around. Jenna begins to walk. 
The little girl awakes. It is dark. She shivers and pulls the red cape around her. She touches something that she recognizes so deeply within her that tears well up in her eyes. She misses home, but the little girl is not so sure what that is. Her eyes adjust to the dark, making out the trees standing their ground, individual leaves resting on their chosen branches. The anxious leaf, one amongst them waiting for his lot to be drawn, to fall, fall, fall back to the earth, giving his life to create life. She has both her small soft hands around the circumference of the snake. This attachment has happened in her sleep. She uses the very tips of her fingers to navigate the rough patterns on the snake's back and the soft, smooth underbelly. The palms sense the living pulse. The little girl follows the desire to find the snake's head, following the location of the hum, hiss, hum. She sings a song, accompanying the drone, a lullaby. The sculpture has become an icon. She is given reverential treatment. Her place, her status, is one of a goddess. She knows this place, for she has experienced many things, been worshipped, ignored, loved, despised even. The sculpture thinks, I am worldly wise, and I understand that this will not last forever. She allows herself to be loved, talked to caressed. She absorbs the emotions that flow around her, soaking up the bitter resentments, the sweet yearnings, the sour anger. She breathes it in as if to enliven her solid form. She uses it to speak to the language of the soul. For she had felt the man's change, she had picked up the subtle nuances of a man's loss of self. She knew, like a fisher cutting through the ground, revealing hidden tumult, that the man was cracking, had cracked. She will hold him in her mind's eye. She alone will hold him. Jenna walks. She walks along grey tarmac paths, past parked cars, sad spindly trees, freedom curtailed by concrete, Impressive mirrored skyscrapers, forgotten council flats, peeling, grey, forgotten like the people within. She walks and takes all this and nothing in. Her eyes remain steadfastly on the tree that sits above the city, rapturous in the dying sun of the day. Jenna's mind whirs, but strangely nothing makes it to the surface. As she walks, a rage forms, from a small knot, growing, spreading, roots, pushing up and out. She begins to sound out the rage with groans, hums, cries and hisses. She has no conscious awareness of anything around her, unaware of others' perception of her. And as she treks, her clothes, so thoughtfully chosen that morning, begin to fray, rip. Shred. Her shoes fall away, leaving her barefooted. The rhythm of her steps join forces with her breath. She is drawn by magnetic force. She is drawn by an urgency that is life, not living, 
actual life. She is hooked right into the universe. Ha! she cries. Ha! The man touches the sculpture in the half-light and mutters under his breath. He feels her warmth and presses his fingertips to the shapes on her surface. His palms encircle the base and he feels understanding emanate from her. But there's also something hard-edged in her tone and he listens harder to her pulse. It is then he understands he needs to leave, not permanently, for escape is pointless, but he needs to leave. You have to go. You must get out. You will turn towards. He smiles dimly at the sculpture. He gives a final stroke down a long, deep, smooth well in her side, grabs his keys and leaves. He walks to the lift, presses G for ground, grounded, groundedness, ground down. The lift travels. He small waves to the security person, heads outside to the busy metropolis. All this in confident, business-like mode until the sunlight catches his sunglasses. He is driven to a halt. But who will think of him? Who will keep him alive? If he is forgotten, he is not alive. He looks up into the clouds. He hears a voice resonating in his chest. I know. I listen. I will call you back. And the man begins to walk. The little girl slides carefully along the snake's back, feeling her way towards the head. She is fully absorbed, calm and quiet. As she reaches the snake's head, she begins to softly sing her lullaby. The snake pulses and undulates under her touch, and finally, as if to help the little girl, lifts her head, turning and hissing, her yellow eyes shining in the half-light, two lamps creating moon circles hanging in the air. The little girl sits up and rolls onto the soft ground. She seems to understand the importance of this meeting. Mother and child, human and animal, mammal and reptile, life and life, fairy tale and myth. The girl abruptly stops her singing and stares back, a defiant look. She looks into the snake's eyes deeply and reaches out her hand. The snake lifts her head and, stretching forward, flicks her tongue quickly around the little girl's fingertips, sensing and smelling. The light tickling makes the little girl giggle and she thinks she sees the snake smile. The snake draws her head up and back, tensing, primed, primal, primeval. The woman climbs barefoot up the mountain, through many different terrains, stumbling, jumping, feral. She has the pinnacle as her task and she knows she cannot stop or question or look back. She must not turn back. Once she reaches her destination, one hair must she pluck from the crescent moon bear, one silver, magical, ancient, primal hair from this powerful creature whose nature is an unknown quantity. And yet she is not afraid for what lies behind her is not a choice at all. Jenna sees the trees as if through a magnifying lens. 
She sees the deeply etched lines of the bark travelling from ground up into the canopy. Her eyes follow the thick roots grasping at the ground. Jenna's eyes lift upwards to the leaves dancing in the breeze, each dancing to its own tune, and yet skillfully merging into one glorious symphony. What strikes Jenna the most is the resolute strength and authentic power of the tree. As she reaches the bare, earthy ground that encircles the tree, she slows and steps her feet from heel to tippy-toes on the earth, realising that she is barefoot. She drops her shoulders, opens her hands, unclenching the finger slowly, petal unfurling. She lifts her face towards the immense trunk. There is a serenity in Jenna's face, and her mouth is resolute. Her eyes are steady, defiant, definite, defined. The tree creaks and groans in welcome, throwing down leaf confetti, waving her branches in ritual celebration, causing Jenna to step in rhythm to take up the tree's mantra. She steps, she steps forwards, backwards, tipping, swerving, swaying, tapping, twirling, dabbing, ducking, curving, caressing. She steps, she steps. The man passes everything that is familiar to him. It is what is known as society, culture, man's pursuits, public spaces, community, institution. He feels defended against the need to step inside this comfort zone, although he has never taken much comfort from the patchwork of falsities that make up this territorial endeavour. He has his armour on. He has been fortified with anger and hope, hope that moves him through, moves through him. This man's eyes are open wide to the pain and hostility, the open sores and wounds, the uninterrupted mindless toils that purge, pull, pain, pant at the very ends of his nerves. He feels everything with a tautness that coils around him, and he rages silently as he drags himself through the landscape. And he is not sure where he needs to go. This journey is unknown, his territory is exploratory. There is no map or app to tell him how to travel this part of the story. His story. Yes, my story, he shouts out loud. My story. My story. The moment lands there like the thread of a spider swinging in the openness, no one really understanding what it is holding on to. The air is so still, the birds have quietened, the leaves have stilled, the trees have ceased groaning, the insects hold their breath. All in the forest is waiting for this moment to break. Which way will the pendulum swing? Girl, snake, girl, snake, girl, snake. The little girl looks uncertainly around her. She senses she needs to choose a path, but is unsure of herself now. This being in front of her is saying something, but the little girl must attune herself, must delve deep into the ancient parts of herself the realm of the ancestors, to hear. 
The little girl knows now that this is the end of the beginnings of the end, the infinite circle that always begins to end. The red cape folds close to her body, clinging in a desperate embrace. She closes her eyes and shivers, trembling in the now cool air. She begins to sway, at first an involuntary movement, and then, as she becomes more conscious of her body's pendulum, a purposeful rocking from side to side, forwards and backwards, tipping, swerving, swaying, tapping, twirling, dabbing, ducking, curving, caressing. An ever-repeating pattern, circular. The little girl feels a motion beside her, and she is aware of the snake moving with her, in sync, attuned. The sculpture is listening. Listening to the wind, the sun, the birds, the clattering of humans. She is hyper-aware and alert. She has no particular emotional drivers. She is simply holding the pendulum in the middle. Steady, calm, ready for the movement that will come. She knows it will come. This sculpture is metamorphosis, metamorphic, a metaphor. Her stories are many, and told within her folds, curves, knots and forms. She tells the story of human nature's perpetual rise and fall, the choices made, consequences thereafter. She is Arachne who weaves and weaves. She is of the fountains, wells and springs surging and flowing until her form changes to rooted laurel. She is fated to be bitten by the snake and never destined to resume her mortal form. She is Actaeon, a man-stag to be hunted and torn to pieces. All these mortals, half-gods, goddesses, following their impulses, passions, hopes, fantasies, fears, jealousies, she is all that changes, transforms. And for what? For love. For love, eternal love. She knows this form is soon to end, but first she must hold him. Hold him. Cradle him. Remember him. Love him. Jenna has ceased her dance and finds herself close to the base of the tree. She is silent and still when she notices a woman standing close by, watching and waiting. Jenna is aware of her appearance and self-consciously looks down at her torn clothes and bare feet. She glances up and smiles uncertainly at the woman, wondering if she should just simply walk away back down towards the town. She knows, too, a simultaneous thought that this is not an option for she has moved too far, and what she came for, however unspoken, unrealized, is imperative to her survival. The woman takes a step forwards, and Jenna notices that she is older than her, not necessarily in years, but in wisdom and knowledge. The woman holds out a hand, even though still some eighty paces away from her. Jenna's eyes drift to that hand and sees in it the lines of life and death. A palm so soft with long fingers. Hand calloused and hard, a hand childlike in its outreach. 
In this hand, Jenna sees her destiny and she reaches out to touch. There is a moment when finger meets finger and an electricity energy flows from one body to the other. Jenna fights the urge to pull away in fear, fights the flight mechanism. One hand clasps the other. The other feels cool and steady, and Jenna is aware of her own being clammy and grimy. They are pulled together by an invisible force, and Jenna raises her eyes to meet this woman's, and she sees deeply into the grey-green pools, finding kindness, empathy, and a power so strong Jenna could feel the force as you would a rage well inside you. And yet, when she interrogates this sense, Jenna realises that what she is seeing or feeling is an intense strength that holds the very opposites of love and hate, anger and joy, for are they not born from the same seed? She thinks to herself, surprised, as she does not recognise her own thinking function in this thought. Had someone spoken? Is something speaking within her? She shakes herself, but continues to gaze into the woman's pale eyes. She feels herself simultaneously found and lost. The wolf called out to everything and nothing. The wolf howled and howled for all that he had found and all that he had lost. The wolf was searching for the link, the connection, the bridge, the thread. Howling. Where is my soul? He had an inner compass, directing him through the streets, for his eyes were unseeing, and his body on automatic pilot. He was crowded with thoughts that jumbled and shook, jostling for space within his mind. His head pulsed with tension, but somewhere he was alert. Alert for the slightest movement, the smallest sign, the most minuscule, synchronous symbol. What is he looking for? What is he looking for? He is a wolf, sniffing at the air. Every hair stands up from his body, trying to sense his way. His nostrils flare. The betters to smell the earth under tarmac, blood under skin, fear behind pretense. His eyes bulge, then narrow, pulsing, the pupils expanding and contracting. His whole body is wired, held in tension, ready to pounce, ready to wheel around at the slightest attack. He is instinct, instinctive, instinctual. The people passing as he walks skirt around him, unsure, avoid eye contact. He looks up into the sky, through the clouds, beyond the blue, past the human realm, and howls. He howls for all those lost, all those beaten, all those in comfort, all those adrift in fantasy, all those mired in reality. He howls. The man knows he cannot turn back. To do so would mean certain death. He does not wish to cause death. He grabs out and sees he is clutching some leaves that are crushed and green, straining his fingers. He looks closely at his fingers. He had stopped. 
He studies the lines that twist and curve across his palm. He has scars that tell a story. His knuckles are dry and slightly darker than the rest of his hand. He licks his hand and notices the salt taste, as well as the modern world of grime, soap, metal, disruption, platitude. His ears prick as he picks up a sound somewhere in the distance, a sound of calling, one note melding into another. He can't make out exactly what it is, but he is drawn to it. He feels the thread pull from somewhere around his navel, and the journey begins, the melody calling in earnest across the land. The wolf man is steady, alert, attuned, and he half walks, half jogs, one ear cocked to the music, dancing in and out of streets, on and off paths, through, around, up and over others. This is what he needs. This is need. The little girl dances with the great snake. They wind around each other, swaying and rocking. The little girl uses the snake's body to allow her to roll, bend, tumble, lean. She gives herself to this snake in every way she can, for the dance is life and vitality. The little girl's cape flows around her in ecstasy and freedom. The snake moves with her, always watching with her pale orbs, sensing with her tongue. She never once loses the pulse, allowing the little girl the ultimate freedom to be in this very moment. She, the snake, she, the little girl, are one, merged, emerging, bridging, connecting, linking, threading. There is an end, though. There is an end, and the snake moves her gently to it. <sighs> she breathes. All is beginning and ending, thinks the sculpture. She knows now that her time is drawing to an end in this time that she has been in. She senses the immediacy of life, and her cold hard stone softens towards the winds that blow through the open window. Nothing the sculpture does now will make any difference. She must now inhale and take in the energy that she needs to transform, metamorphosize. The sculpture twists and curves in the air that flows in her porous material. She must only think of herself now, for what will she become next? To whom shall she belong? Be. Long to be. Where they stand is a space, the ground sandy grey-brown. As Jenna's feet begin to move, it's a shuffling of sorts, a gentle feeling of the earth beneath. The earth holds her, contains her, and yet it wills her to flow with. The shapes she makes with her feet create patterns that swirl, shift and change as she goes. The forest woman follows, leads, merges, detaches. There is no sound now, only the inner music that leads the women to dance. For Jenna, this makes perfect sense. Her senses are perfect. She is in one moment present and disintegrated. Her being particles, atoms, molecules, cells, held together by invisible lines that fizz and stir, electrifying, magnetizing. The women dance in that space, 
possessed by the intimate knowledge that this dance, this dance, this dance will shift. The earth picks up the lines created, allowing the pathways to come into being through her soft and supple, pliable uppermost crust. The lines take the shape of the dance as the women slow to a rest, curled quietly into an archway of the trees. What is left is the message borne out of the women's communion with the earth's shadowy spirit. She is a map now, an ancient pathway, one that tells Jenna's story, not linear, unreadable and yet so visceral. Jenna reaches out to trace her lines. He walks solidly, negotiating the pathways built for humans to map their journeys from one place to another. Nothing is solid in the way he sees, though. Buildings are blurred and merge into one another. People are things scuttling this way and that, ants busy with unknown business. He notes that his perception of his fellow beings is skewed. He no longer views through the lens of a citizen, rather his attention is taken by the heaviness with which someone walks, the patterns that another makes while weaving through traffic, the skittering disappearance of a woman morphing in and out of shop frontages. He is on a mission. He knows that he feels the sculpture's breath on his back urging him forward. What his ears seek is the sound that calls him. His new-found wharf sense tells him he needs to keep searching. The sound? How to describe? An echo of a former self, a gong of remembrance, a drum deep and resonant, a lyre calling him, soothing him. Fearsome in its insistence, although gently in mood. He occasionally halts to sniff the air and then continues on his way. He suddenly notices, amongst the city buildings that take the skyline, a gap within which a plume of smoke rises gently into the clouds above. He notices too, as he casts his eyes downwards, a small square stone structure with crumbling fascia and yet sturdy with the proud markings of careful workmanship. There are large windows looking out over the city and holly winding around the edges of the arched doorway. There are lights in the topmost window or, as he looks closer, candles burning brightly within lanterns, flickering a message of warmth and comfort. He has never seen this building before and looking around him he realises that others do not see it or choose to ignore it. He stops a few yards from this strange place, mesmerised by its difference, the unreal quality it holds within this bustling modern city. The house, for this is what it seems to suggest, is emanating the sound that calls this wolf. The sound is clearer now, but by no means more discernible. He stops for a moment and really looks at this place. Somehow he recognises it as a person would recognise a familiar environment. The little girl breathes deeply. She is tired from the snake dance and is hit suddenly and overwhelmingly by a deep sense of exhaustion. The snake knows this, and yes, she has led this to its natural point. The snake brings her head round to face the little girl. They look at each other with unfathomable knowledge. 
there is at this point a wild connection. It's not a space filled with human kindness or empathy, and yet both are profoundly aware of the other's needs. The little girl shuffles closer and stretches out her small hand to the snake's skin and caresses it lightly. The snake closes around her. The ground on which they have been dancing is patterned with their movements. The swirls and pathways imprinted on this ancient forest floor tell a story that will be carried from leaf to leaf, bird to bird, beetle to bug, snake to child for many years to come. The little girl lays her head tenderly and tentatively on the snake's body. The snake warms her, closer and closer. There is a breath. At this moment, far away in the city, a sculpture inexplicably smashes onto the floor, breaking into many, many pieces. It leaves a plume of dust rising from the force of the break. Puff, puff, plume. When found some time later, no one can remember what the sculpture was. Some remember a woman's body, others a shapeful pattern. Many only recall a sculpture once being present and marvel at their lack of observational skills that they recall nothing more than this. The room itself seems to close in on itself, as if the impact of the breakage was so forceful that it sucked the very oxygen from the air. What is left is the unmistakable sense of knowing, as if someone has hung in the air a scent that reassures this is all a repetition, it has all been done before, I have been here. He walks towards this house. He names it such for want of a better word. It is stone-built, as in the old tradition, with what a visitor might call quaint windows nowadays, small eyelets, making a face of the fascia with a scarlet red door for a mouth. The smoke he saw from a distance is rising melodically from a chimney perched jauntily atop the house. Melodically, for its uncharacteristic puff-puff plume, puff-puff plume, as if someone has set a fire that is working to some invisible rhythm. As he walks closer, the sound begins to envelop him, a sound that at once seems familiar as music intermixed with nature's wild sound. It is unpredictable, and yet reassuring, and it holds within it a steady drone, a bee humming, a mantra unfolding, a song held at its fetal stages. The sound is utterly mesmerising, and this man cannot but marvel at the complexities of sound that attend his ears. He is educated in the subtleties of music, and yet he had never before allowed himself to be taken by music, truly taken, taken away, awakened. Jenna is at this point exhausted yet filled with a deep sense of calm, all in her body is still, her mind free, her feet planted firmly on the floor. The two women have not spoken words. They have communicated in a myriad of other ways, but there has been no need for word language. Jenna smiles slightly. She shifts her body weight to one side, surveying the sculpted earth from the dance. 
The woman is still there, although she is disappearing, melding into the forest backdrop. Jenna can't quite make out the woman's outline, as if the edges have been blurred out. She notices a strong animal smell emanating from the woman's skin, not unpleasant, more essential. There is a part of Jenna that does not wish for this existence to end, for this is an existence. She exists in this space. She actually experiences herself. There is a tingling sensation to her own skin that she deeply comprehends to be her own lines of being, making contact with the air. The woman holds out her paw to Jenna's hand and they momentarily touch. This is a greeting, a parting, a longing, a desire, a pain a grief, a joy, an acknowledgement, a knowing, an unknowing, an intense, immense flutter of moment that takes on such irreverent meaning as simultaneously being a drop in the ocean, a grain in the sand, a particle in the air, a star in the universe, a body on this earth. The fox darts into the trees, leaving a flash of red and a sparkle of white, a medicine blanket, a pelt that settles on Jenna's shoulders, entering her bones, burying itself into the marrow. And she is alone. The man feels a sharp pain in his side and doubles over, staggering slightly. He reaches out to the house for support, half expecting his hand to sink into the walls. This time, the walls are strong, smooth from time, gnarled from age, and as he explores the material, he is reminded of his sculpture. His sculpture. No, he acknowledges at this point that the sculpture was never his to possess or own. He realises now that perhaps he has a great debt to the sculpture, but as yet, he cannot pinpoint what that debt is. He understands that his relationship with the sculpture was, is, the most authentic friendship he has experienced in his life. As he leans against the wall, head bowed, pain slowly subsiding, Trickster laughing gently around him, he notices a puff-puff plume of smoke rise into the air in the distance. A great heave within his belly pushes a ball of air into his throat, he holds his breath tightly, not wishing to let it escape. A well of sadness spreads through the pores of his skin, creating a ripple that distorts and contorts his face until finally his eyes fill with tears. Unable to hold his breath any longer, the man releases a strangled cry, a sound that rips through his being as if he is breaking into a hundred different pieces. He kneels on the floor as tears from droplets under his eyes and heavy with grief run in rivulets down his face, soaking the earth beside him. He scrabbles to compose himself to pull his core together and then his ears pick up the music. Orpheus's lyre, calling to him through the water. His shattered body vibrates with the sound, a magnetising force pulling dragging, juddering outside and through his being. The music pulls him to his feet, and as he walks through the now open door of the house, there flows behind him, through the city, 
a clay chalk river mixed with a thousand tears. The forest is alive with movement. The trees are speaking the language of the ancients, pulsing, reverberating, echoing, vibrating. There are pathways of wind ripping through the branches, the beauteous sound of rain splashing onto the mulchy ground, creating puddles of tears. Jenna wanders. She wanders, soaking up the smells and sounds as she feels herself smiling, smiling, all of her face engaged, all of her being awakened and involved in that one action. The trees hug round her tightly, the leaves whisper love, the fox nickers gently from afar. And this is truly the happiest she has felt. Jenna notices now a pathway roughly sketched through the forest by the deer that have followed their ancestors this same way for many a year. She turns to follow this way, knowing somewhere that this is the right way, the right passage, the rite of passage. She pulls her fox pelt close into her, comforted. As she travels, Jenna sings lightly to herself a song of old that she was not aware that she knew, and yet the familiarity of the melody plays on her lips. She senses that there is a being close by. She is not afraid. As she rounds a slight twist in the path, she stops short to witness a huge snake uncurl from its sleep, unfurling muscle by muscle, making its way through the forest to some unknown place that hides this earthly alien. Perhaps this snake resides in a cave of many mirrors, reflecting back many sides and divided images that make up a whole, Jenna is struck by the grace of this creature and knows now that she is ready. Still following the path, light begins to strike through the branches, hitting the ground, illuminating a minuscule circle on the ground. One shard, two, three, until the sky pushes through the canopy, beckoning Jenna to come, to come, to come. As she passes through the last of the trees to the open, Jenna stops to read a small wooden hand-painted sign that simply reads, Adder. Looking back into the forest, Jenna draws one circle in the earth with her toe and places three things in the centre, her guard, her fear, her falsity. She then begins to walk steadily back. Somewhere, a mother breathes as she gathers her child to her and whispers the magical, the sublime, the truth as she feels it to be. She whispers urgently, for she hasn't got long, and the little girl looks up into her mamma's eyes with a wisdom and knowledge that far surpasses her age. The little girl half sings, half hisses a song, a lullaby, a gift. And she gathers a little red cape around her, Comforted, safe, encircled. The man enters the house, climbs a set of narrow wooden stairs to the room with the lantern flowing brightly in the window. There is a fire burning brightly, flames flickering shadows across the wall, dancing woodland folk, snakes' tongue, dragons fighting. The man kneels in front of the fire, warming his hands. Hestia, 
welcoming him to her hearth. The music that drew him is a distant murmur, and he slowly realises that it is he who is singing, an old song that speaks of life, that calls for life, that demands life. The combination of song, fire, the very walls around him, awakes in him a distant body memory of home, homeliness, homely. He sings to all of this, and he watches as night falls, enveloping the house in a gentle shroud that flows and moves. He curls up on the deep-woven rug in front of the fire and lies staring into the flames. He turns slightly as the door open and an old person shuffles rhythmically into the room. There is no urgency to this shuffle. It is a dedicated dance, one that will end in a destination, this time beside the man who has sat up. He is not perturbed by the presence of this person. It seems that, of course, someone must tend the fire, keep the lanterns in mind, nurture this house. The person, it is impossible to tell whether they fit into the category of male or female, the stereotypes no longer play a part on this person's body. The person has lines in their face that tell a hundred stories. Their movement dances a thousand memories. The hands that reach out to place another log on the fire welcomes the shattered, the divided, the lost, the confused, the abused, the many. This hand reaches to touch the man's shoulder and sits beside him facing the fire. A long finger outstretches and draws a line from the fire and circles it round the room slowly and methodically until it returns to the starting point in the flames. The man is sure that this point of meeting, from start to end of demarcating the circle, is confirmed by a light spark in the flames. Then a story is told, a story that encompasses the creation of the world, the passages of the gods, the ancient code of the animals, the lessons learnt, lost, refound, retraced. Death in all its guises, the full circle of life, and so much more. The person speaks, the man listens, and as he does so he feels warmth spread through his body a simultaneous physical and emotional response. He does not know how long he sits there in the warmth of the fire, the circle protecting him, the storyteller embalming the space with the images of the ancients. The story settles in him, through his porous skin, seeping into his veins, etched into his bones. Then he is alone. He looks up to see that the lantern has been placed at his feet. He is ready and standing, he walks slowly around the drawn-out circle singing his song, his heart song. He leaves three things in the centre before he goes. His pride, his numbness, his falsity. And he walks away from the house and begins the journey back. There is a moment on a busy city street where no one recognises anyone or thing. This moment stands out as a woman and a man pass each other. Their eyes flicker upwards to meet and momentarily there is a surge of energy that pulls them closer. And then the moment is gone as they pass each other, as the planet turns, 
as the wolf howls, as the tree speaks, as the paths diverge. Far, far away, in a land of long ago, a sculpture is placed lovingly in an alcove that looks out over a bay of turquoise water and looks into a room of many things. The sculpture observes, without judgment or comment, a scarlet red cape hanging on a coat peg, gently swinging in the breeze. The sculpture inhales deeply, appreciating the cool, salty sea air. She thinks to herself, I have been here before. I have watched this in another time. I will see it again. Thank you for listening to Another Story Told, the podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the show. And if you do, then please subscribe because you'll get a new story every week. If, like us, you want to celebrate new authors and narrators, then please share this as far and wide as you possibly can. Maybe you have a story of your own that you'd like to submit. To do that, just look at the show notes and all the information you need is there. Thank you.